0: It appears plant-based products have hit a bit of a lull, but what's next for the sector as a whole? David Benzikin of Mission Plant and Moonshot Collaborative joins us to talk shop about plant-based prospects and what consumers are really looking for on this episode of the Food Institute Podcast, coming at you right now. All right, everybody, to start us off here, I did want to remind everybody about the Plant-Based Insider, our weekly newsletter that covers everything you need to know about the plant-based space. Releases every week at noon on Tuesdays, Eastern Time, and you can follow the link in the description of this episode to sign up for that right there. And I do want to note that it is a great newsletter, and we have exclusive content every week that covers the plant-based space. So once again, make sure that you sign up for that by following the link in the description of this episode. So with that out of the way, We want to welcome David back to the show. Um, A lot has changed in the plant-based space since we last spoke with you in 2021, but before we get started, I thought it'd be useful for you to reintroduce yourself to our audience members who may not already be familiar with you, so can you start us off with that today, David?
1: Sure. I'm David Benzigan. I'm the founder and CEO of Mission Plant, and Mission Plant is a consultancy and and, uh, angel investment fund based in New York focused on building the plant-based and alternative protein industries. And primarily in my day-to-day work, I help foreign plant-based companies launch into the U.S. market. Uh, Prior to this work, I founded and uh, eventually sold a plant-based seafood company and did additional consulting over the last 15 years or so.
0: And thanks for sharing that. And as I alluded to real quick before I introduced you, a lot has changed since we last spoke. So I was hoping maybe we could start off with you giving us a little bit of your assessment of the sector over the last couple of years and maybe giving us that 40,000-foot view of the plant-based sector as a whole in the U.S. So could you tell us a little bit about what you're seeing right now?
1: Sure. So since 2021, we saw several things. Um, first, we did actually see at the beginning of that period some significant growth. Uh, one of the things that spurred that growth was uh, the pandemic led to a lot of people thinking more carefully about how they were eating and being more conscientious about the foods they were purchasing and putting in their bodies for you know fear of their health and for um, the additional time they had to focus on cooking and on eating well and spending time with their loved ones. Uh, after the pandemic had really calmed down and we returned to a more normal State of being, there was a there was a rejection of a lot of healthy foods as people started embracing indulgence again, and so across many categories, uh, plant based and others, you saw a, retor- a return to more traditional standard American diet eating, a return to fast food restaurants and other things. With the onset of inflation and the uh, rise in prices, we saw many products in the plant based space start to decline in sales as people uh, grew concerned about the pricing and started to reject some of the things that they'd been um, you know embracing for their for health reasons during the pandemic. Uh, we've seen quite a decline in the last year and I do expect that we will return to normal within 12 to 18 months, but it certainly is a hard period for the sector.
0: And I think it's worthwhile to take a look at the global perspective as well. I know that you have your, you know, your your expertise ranges over into Europe as well. And as you said, you know, you do help some of these foreign countries or sorry, foreign companies uh, trying to launch in the U.S. So what could you tell us about the global sector as well when it comes to plant-based, not just the U.S.? Absolutely. I think that's a really
1: important perspective. Uh, what we've seen in the U.S. is really that there was a massive growth in the sector in uh, you know, the last 10 years. And it was spurred largely by demand, but also by huge interest from venture capital and significant resources being poured into the sector, sometimes outpacing the actual consumer demand that was ready, just because the amount of awareness and education and demand from consumers wasn't quite matching the excitement from investors. And so we had a bit of a bubble. We had ex- extremely high valuations on companies and we had uh, companies that were raising more than they can afford to justify with their sales and uh, consumers being encouraged really to try things that they weren't necessarily expecting to try prior and that led to a lot of novelty purchase but not necessarily a lot of repeat purchase whereas which is when you see challenges in sales however in other parts of the world we haven't seen these challenges in europe and asia and other places we didn't have this extraordinarily high investment. And so uh, we didn't have that bubble. And companies have always had to rely more on being profitable from early on instead of here where they were able to count on another check coming in any day. And so there's been a real need to be more focused on the bottom line and more you know, traditional in their business practices and more careful with their money. Uh, in addition, the demand has not has not grown as quickly, but the growth of the sector has been very much aligned with the growth from the consumer demand. And so we've seen slow but steady growth. And we're continuing to see that today. In many parts of the world, plant-based sales are still growing. Um, they're just growing at a slower pace than they were here during that short time period. And I expect that once we normalize here, we'll see that. We'll see, you know, consumers do want these foods. Consumers do want foods that make them feel good, that uh, they want to eat more vegetables. They want to eat in a way that aligns their values, their health, and their interests with their desires. And uh, I know that our trends will will lead to that again, but it will be at a slower, more steady, organic pace.
0: Yeah, and I'm going to Think a little bit here. It seems like, you know, the U.S. is kind of entering into the same kind of business mentality that Europe has had when it comes to the plant-based sector, almost out of necessity for a lot of the, you know, reasons you just mentioned. Do you think that's what's kind of happening here? They're retrenching a little bit, getting a little bit smarter with their money. I think we're seeing this across the food continuum. It's not just in plant-based, but, you know, private equity, all different types of funding. I don't want to say is completely drying up, but it's definitely becoming a little bit more selective. So do you kind of see that dynamic entering the U.S. market at this point out of necessity?
1: Absolutely. You know, one of the reasons that one of the things that led to this bubble was a massive influx of venture capital from funds and sectors that don't necessarily understand the consumer packaged goods space, the perishable food space, you know, all of these sectors. A lot of investment from real estate investors and from traditional tech investors, specifically software and, and digital investors. And there's a big difference in those kinds of companies. If you think about what it takes to build a software company, ultimately of course you do need to invest in, in many people. But at the beginning, a single person you know, could code on their computer and build a software. And so the capital expenditures needed are one computer, <laughs> often which is purchased for a reason other than the company. And so really it's nothing. The operation, uh, operating expenses is that one person. Uh, now think about a food company. You need to source the ingredients. You need to manufacture a product at scale, safely and consistently. You need to distribute it around the world. You need to convince both retailers or restaurants and consumers to buy it from you. So there's a lot of marketing and sales involved, a lot of transport and a lot of capital expenditure for physical, tangible production of assets and operating expenses for inventory and for people to make it all work. So it's a very different business. And what we see is that successful consumer packaged goods companies in the food space historically have sold for, you know, one and a half to maybe on a really good day, two times revenue, whereas software companies can sometimes sell for dozens of times revenue, you know, huge multiples, 40 times, 20 times. And so it's a very different sector. And the time it takes to get to maturity is also much longer. It takes a longer time to get into distribution to get all those restaurants or retailers to put you on their menus or, or shelves and in software it could be as simple as launching on the app store and getting viral and so not to not to denigrate that sector of course there are many companies that are challenged there it's a very competitive sector as well but it's just impossible to grow as quickly in the cpg and food space and so Today, with a lot of those investors realizing it's not as easy and not as quick in the returns they'd expected, you're seeing funds slow down and certainly companies are having to respond and be more fiscally conservative and thoughtful with their approach.
0: It's very interesting and definitely something I know we'll be tracking through this year. Um, another trend that I want to talk to you a little bit about, and I'd love to get your you know opinion on it, is just this movement towards plant forward. And one of the things that I've been at least been seeing, um, you know, we hosted actual veggies here about a year ago, doing a talk about their veggie burgers. Um, it's just kind of an interesting dynamic to me that plant-based has sort of, at least among the consumers I've talked to, taken up the meat analogs, um, especially because that's you know typically one of the first plant-based items that they actually got to see. You know, I'm thinking the Impossible Whopper, etc. These were the first you know, tranche of products that consumers really saw. But it seems to me that there's a movement towards plant forward items, which are made with actual vegetables, you know, maybe ingredients that people can pronounce. I'm just wondering from your vantage point, are you seeing a similar kind of trend and maybe even like a bifurcation in the market where you have those traditional, well, traditional is kind of a crazy word to say since we're only a couple (laughs) years into it at this point, but you know, the beyond meats, the impossibles, those kinds of products that are trying to mimic meat versus, you know, plant forward items, which are plant-based um, but maybe more on the vegetable side. Are you seeing any kind of dynamic like that when you're doing your work?
1: Yeah, I'm certainly seeing people embrace, uh, you know, whole foods products, and and I don't mean whole foods the store. I mean whole food ingredients products, and you know, products really celebrating vegetables and grains and and whole ingredients that they that they want to see. Um, I'm not necessarily convinced that we have, you know, that that the interest in analogs is gone. I mean, we can still see. There are categories like dairy, in which, you know, in milk, you know, plant-based is still a massive portion of the industry, around 15 percent of all fluid milk sales. So I don't think it's gone. I think it's really that consumers are being more thoughtful and are are being more selective in what they're choosing to purchase. Now, I do want to caution that I think it's un unfor- or I do want to share that I think it's unfortunate that some of the rejection of the analogs has come from an unrealistic and unfair judgment of the space where the traditional animal industries have been very effective in painting a picture of plant-based foods as being unhealthy or unsustainable or whatever it may be. And that's a real concern for me because it is missing the conversation, the real conversation, which is relative to what? Uh, What I mean by that is, you know, there was a huge campaign, for example, to tarnish the image of almond milk, as being hugely unsustainable because of the significant amount of water it takes to grow almonds. That's true. However, what the dairy industry wasn't saying when they were making those advertising efforts was that cow's milk takes a significantly larger amount of water than almond milk. Uh, We saw the same thing with a lot of the attacks on plant-based meats. The fact is, from Harvard to Oxford, all the largest health institutions in the world have found that even eating what we, you know, what we talk about as processed meat alternatives in a diet uh, has been, you know, a, a, a plant-based diet with those ingredients has been found to lead to lower rates of ischemic heart disease, diabetes, and certain kinds of cancer relative to eating a traditional diet with uh, meat and dairy. So I think the, the wholesale rejection is unfortunate. Now, it's not to say that I am, you know, not accepting or not excited for the growth of... You know, actual vegetables in our diet. I think it's essential, essential, and I think that the future eventually will be where we all eat more healthfully and in a more whole ingredient, plant based way. I hope I hope we all get there. The reason that I do believe still in the need for analogs is because most consumers today aren't ready to turn down Big Macs for kale salads, and I love what Actual Veggies is doing. I, I I'm really excited for companies like that who are celebrating vegetables. And there is a segment of consumers who are embracing that. And I think it'd be fantastic if everybody were. But the fact is not everybody is ready to make that leap overnight. And so giving people something, you know, consumer behavior change is extremely difficult. And the less you have to get somebody to change their behavior, the easier. So if I say you can still go, you can still have ice cream with your grandpa, you can still have the thing you enjoy so much, the flavor you like, the sprinkles you like, etc. cetera, and uh, we're just going to swap this one thing. You won't even notice it, and it's same price, same taste, same everything. It's a lot easier to convince somebody to do that than, by the way, you're now having ice cream made with, you know, uh, instead of cream and butter and eggs, we're making ice cream with uh, avocado and olive oil and all these things that we're seeing. So I, I think it's more challenging when you're convincing people to make more changes. That said... I do believe that a lot of the values that lead to plant-based eating, uh, whether it's with analogs or without, are driving the interest in eating more whole vegetables. Uh, Health is the number one factor that people select and why they choose to eat more plant-based foods. And so eating those kinds of ingredients certainly aligns with that. And I'm excited to see the growth of that space.
0: A lot I'd love to follow up on there. So I think we'll try to break this down real quick. But I think one of the things you brought up were a number of different health conditions uh, that can be benefited uh, by eating a plant-based diet. So I'm wondering on the consumer side, you know, what specific health conditions or health attributes really are consumers kind of gravitating towards in this plant-based space when they decide to eat plant-based? Do you have any information about what specifically they're trying to do when they make a switch to a plant-based diet, even if it's just a flexitarian kind of approach? Absolutely. And what's really important is
1: understanding the nuance in uh, how consumers are thinking about healthy eating. You know, for so long, we've spoken about consumers embracing uh, new diets, whether it's, you know, plant-based eating, or whether it's paleo or keto or gluten-free, whatever it is, based on health or perceptions of health. What we really need to understand is that there is such a wide array of motivations within what we call health for different populations primarily based on age and condition. And so when you look at what young people are seeking when they're eating uh, more plant-based foods, you find a lot of interest in vitality, in mental clarity and acuity, in mood, in uh, you know all those kinds of things. When you look at much older populations, boomers and beyond, you're looking at things specifically like heart disease, longevity, uh, and actually weight loss still. A lot of people in those generations are really thinking about how they can maintain their weight control. And so the only actual, in, in the research that uh, my company Moonshot Collaborative, which is a, a part of Mission Plant that does consumer insights work, the one thing that was universal across generations was actually gut health. Uh, consumers of all ages are concerned about gut health. Understanding how different consumers think differently about what's healthy, it's really important that we consider that in marketing. One of the concerns I've had with the plant-based alternative space has been, and it's true with a lot of these, uh, you know, trends in, in eating, is that is the, is the insistence on marketing products based on that attribute as a solution for a consumer need state when actually I don't believe that many consumers think that not, a food not being plant-based is a problem. I think that we need to understand that there are nuances behind that. Why do people want dairy, non-dairy milks? For many reasons. It could be because they're lactose intolerant. It could be they just like the taste of these other milks better. It could be all kinds of things. But it's not just because they're rejecting dairy. If that were the case, then they wouldn't also be buying cheese and, and ice cream from cows with their non-dairy milks. And so we really need to understand the nuance in what's motivating consumer behaviors. And in each product, it might be different. And we need to dig into that so we can speak to that actual pain point we're solving for in a, on a category specific basis, and not just assume that the, the, uh, the attribute of plant-based in and of itself is a solution to a problem that consumers don't identify with.
0: Yeah, and I think there's two things going on there. you know, number one, and we kind of talked about this earlier, you know, a lot of consumers aren't fully ready to switch over to a non-animal product. And I think that's a cultural thing, especially in America, you know, to your point earlier, you know, as the pandemics kind of receded, people were going out to fast food restaurants, et cetera. So there is like a strong cultural connection there. But you know, to your point, I do think that there is a marketing issue here. and you know, I think at the top level, people, would kind of accept that eating more vegetables or eating less meat is probably better for you. Um, But it's also probably kind of a rotating kind of scale, right? And it's not so much eliminating it entirely as it is reducing it and trying to replace with vegetables. So I'm just wondering, you know, we talked about a little bit here, but maybe we could do a little case study, you know, like what kind of attributes should these companies be facing or really giving out to consumers when they're marketing their product. And I know, like you said, you know, it's not going to be a one size fits all kind of approach, but you know, what kind of attributes should they be pushing out there instead of just, you know, relying on plant-based and hoping that consumers can make the connection themselves.
1: Oof. It's, it's so category specific, but um, you know, if we look at, uh, you know, if we look at products like uh, beverages, right. Consumers are really embracing functionality in beverages they no longer want beverages to just be about quenching thirst and about um, you know they don't want them to be sugar bombs. You know they're really looking for their beverages to hydrate and provide additional value. And so, in a sector like that, I would think about how can you enhance the nutritional properties or functional properties of that of that product with other characteristics. And that's where we see things like. Um, you know medicinal mushrooms in in beverages or probiotics like an Olipop or things like that so you know that's an example where consumers are looking for that beverage to produce a solution beyond just thirst, thirst quenching um, if you look at uh, dairy you know we still we, we, we've we've abandoned the fact that you know huge huge swaths of the of the population about 75 percent of the global population are lactose intolerant And, you know, in this country, over many years, the white population has eaten enough dairy that we've tricked our bodies into being used to it. But that really applies only to those of Eastern Europe, uh, sorry, only to those of of European descent. And uh, it is something that is, um, there's still a significant number of us who are lactose intolerant. And so we need to recognize that and celebrate that these products solve that major problem. Each sector is different. Um, you know, with plant-based seafood, it could be the fact that there's a lack of mercury uh, and that it's safe for pregnant women. You know, every, every category is different. But understanding that specific need, what is the actual thing that the animal product is solving for the consumer or failing to solve? You know, there's a framework in marketing called the jobs to be done. And that refers to what am I hiring that product for? What, is it, what, is it, what job is it doing in my life? Maybe it's emotional, maybe it's physical, maybe it's health oriented, maybe it's satiation or taste, or just being affordable. Understanding what needs those things are solving is really important. And what's it not doing? Well, this product is not X. Uh, you know, I worked with a company last year called Yo Egg, and we found that consumers appreciated that eggs are traditionally quite versatile. Um, but we also found that with that versatility, consumers expressed a frustration with how easy it was to mess up the cooking of eggs. You know how easy it was to accidentally let a poached egg turn hard boiled or something of that nature. And that's a frustration that yo egg uh, as a plant based egg that really makes an infallible uh, poached or sunny side up egg because the yolk will never set because it can be cooked really quickly and even in a microwave. You know, that company has been able to succeed because it's solving a problem for consumers that's really not related to being plant-based as much as it is solving a problem around convenience and uh, ease of use. So really understanding those nuances can make all the difference in success.
0: Yeah, and one thing I want to bring up, and we kind of touched on the edges here, but you know, plant-based eggs, shellfish, even dairy products why don't we see more people in that space really advertising to folks with allergies to these products? To me, it seems like this is a no brainer, you know, like we already talked a little bit about the lactose part, but obviously there are a lot of people with shellfish allergies, uh, even egg allergies, just kind of crazy to me that we haven't seen too much, at least in my spot, um, you know, advertising to these groups. Is there any reason you could think of why that hasn't really hit the forefront at this point?
1: I think it has to do with companies making assumptions that the population will already understand that it applies to them. And I think that's a mistake because, yes, it's true that if somebody saw a product and read the ingredients and studied it and thought about it, they would recognize that. But reaching specific populations with particular dietary concerns around safety, like allergenicity, is something that would be so much more effective if it was actually targeted at reaching out to that community in particular, in a targeted way to say, You know, to go to the blank association of people with that uh, need state and say, hey, we've got a product that can help your community uh, not have anaphylactic shock and uh, and avoid all that, you know, gut discomfort and everything else. You know, one of the most powerful uh, group of influencers are what we call mommy bloggers. And this is a community of people who are driven by the uh, health and safety of the planet for their for their children. And very often we're seeing them be the most passionate, uh, and it's obviously not only mothers, it can be fathers too, uh, but this is the most passionate audience around advocating for the safety of allergen-free foods for kids. And so that's such an easy community to uh, promote such products to. And I think that the companies have thought, oh, well, obviously people will know that this is a solution for this community, so we don't have to bother reaching out to them. And that's a really big mistake.
0: Definitely interesting. And, you know, I'm thinking even, you know, if you have a seafood restaurant, being able to produce some kind of plant based shrimp so that you can bring those people in that have an allergy or vegan, you know, there's a bunch of different need states that you can kind of hit there. So that's kind of interesting. Also helps segue into my next question. Um, So taking a look in the rear view, it seemed in 2020 into 2021, every fast food company in the country was aiming to launch a plant based product. Uh, kind of interesting to see now in t- early 2024 here, that somewhat cooled off. Um, I think an interesting maybe starting point here is even just taking a look at like McDonald's versus uh, Burger King. Obviously, Impossible Whopper, still doing well, still on the menus. During that time period, I just referenced the McPlant was all over the headlines, but it doesn't seem to have made it into the U.S. You know, beyond a couple of trial markets. Uh, at this point. So I'm just wondering, are you seeing that, you know, interest by fast food companies in this sector has cooled off as it's saturated? How are you seeing the current fast food market when it comes to these plant-based analogs? Sure. Um,
1: Before we get there, if we could, you mentioned something earlier that I wanted to reference. You mentioned the fact that restaurants really uh, benefit from ensuring that they have an option for consumers with different needs. And you know, what the research has found is that one in six consumers going out to eat do prefer to have a plant based option. Uh, that, uh, that speaks to the fact that, you know, about 5% of the population is vegetarian, and an additional percent or so are vegan. But then you have so many more who are flexitarian and who prefer to eat plant based, you know, 15, 20%. And so when you're looking at that huge population, you find that restaurants are often lacking uh, options to meet the needs of these consumers. And we call it the veto vote. If you think about who dictates where somebody eats, if you have a group of friends going out together or a family going out together, and there's somebody who has a deadly allergy or there's somebody somebody who has a dietary restriction or who eats kosher or halal or something, everybody's going to eat based on that person, right? You're not going to go out to dinner somewhere where you know that you're excluding one member of your party entirely from enjoying their meal. And so you're going to choose a restaurant that caters to that person. and if it is a restaurant that also caters to everybody else, great. But if those other restaurants have failed to include options for that consumer, you're losing an entire party. It could be, you know, a six-top, uh, you know, hundreds of dollars of business out the door. And so I do think that restaurants need to appreciate that sometimes they don't even know how much business they're missing. You know, nearly 15% of top line sales might be disappearing if they're not providing not only an option but really good options delicious options that excite people the same way some of the traditional animal-based meals will um, to your to your point about fast food chains we have seen uh, an evolution in, in what products are being offered and who's offering them and I think there are several factors there first like I said with this explosion of plant-based led by you know significant investment in the space everybody wanted to jump on the bandwagon and everybody wanted to get involved. And I do think that everybody needs to have plant-based options. However, I think we need to understand that consumers probably aren't going to fast food restaurants first and foremost for plant-based foods because they're not going to fast food restaurants for anything other than what they're traditionally eating. If I'm looking for a healthful meal, that's not where I'm looking to spend my time or my money. And so um, I do think those restaurants would still benefit from having products because even vegans like to be indulgent sometimes and want those options and want to be able to eat with their friends in those you know very traditional american places but uh, we're not going to see the largest success in those places cuz it's not where other values that are a lot, that uh, that overlap with plant based like healthfulness are are uh, working there the other thing to consider is How invested, not just financially, but in messaging and in marketing, a fast food chain has been in launching a plant based product. I think with the growth of the sector, a lot of restaurant chains just threw an item on their menus, hoping that it would appease a consumer population that they weren't reaching. And that's a real mistake. Uh, I think what Impossible has done, uh, sorry, what Burger King has done so well with the Impossible Whopper is deciding that you know, we need to make this as delicious and talk and show people that it's as delicious as what we already have. And we need to get people excited about the opportunity to enjoy all of their favorite things about Whoppers and this additional value proposition of it being plant-based. That combination is a lot more attractive. I don't think McDonald's has really invested in promoting the McPlant. Uh, And when you don't put the force of your business behind it, when you put it on your menu without promoting it or without talking about the benefits of it, without actually driving trial and excitement for it, consumers aren't going to respond. You know, I think that that's been a major difference between the two chains and a lot of restaurants that have seen uh, smaller success than they would have liked and than I would have liked for those plant-based options really comes down to how they're promoting them how they're messaging them, you know, I am, you know, I'm very tired of going to a restaurant and seeing the, you know, drab menu item that's supposedly appealing to me, you know, that that describes itself with no uh, exciting language. You know, you see caramelized onions and burger with, you know, seared with blah, 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 blah. And then you see the plant-based burger and it says veggie burger. And you're like, really? Like that's what you told, you know, plant-based burger, lettuce, tomato. How, mix, how excited am I going to be for that description? I still have taste buds, and I still have eyes and ears, and uh, I'm excited about food the same way everybody else is. If I'm marketed to, and so, you know, we have to see consumers, even in diet restricted populations, or or that are choosing to eat differently, uh, as consumers who still have free will and who choose where they eat and what they eat based on what is exciting for them. And that means really putting effort and time into making dishes delicious, sound delicious and promoted uh, based on what they're solving and how good they are uh, so that we see them succeed. McDonald's has just not done that.
0: It's very interesting. And I think your point towards, you know, most of the time when you do take a look at the menu and there's a veggie burger to your point, it's, you know, just veggie burger, whereas everything else has got a bunch of descriptors on it. So I think that's a very interesting point. Um, I really just have one last question here, and I'll set it up with this. A couple of weeks ago in Today in Food, our daily newsletter, we did a report and we found a company that was creating a plant based eel, and I think it was 3D printed too. And a little light bulb went off in my head. I was like, that's it. We've now made plant based versions of everything. So I'm wondering from your spot, you know, it just seems like every type of animal product has been turned into a plant based version at this point. And I think a lot of the growth and a lot of what we were tracking between 2020 to now has been as these companies have entered into new sectors to me, it seems like it's saturated. So I guess this is a two part question. Do you think we've already kind of got to that saturation point where most of these animal products have been turned into a plant-based version? And if so, where does the sector go from here? Where do you th- see things happening, you know, kind of going over the next couple of years when it comes to, you know, CPG or even food service, uh, animal products like that being turned into a plant-based version.
1: So first I, I have to, I have to say something. I find it very funny. Um, I was one of the two founders of a company called Ocean Hugger Foods, uh, which we sold, which we grew and sold a few years ago to a man named Yves Potvin, who who now runs that company uh, as Conscious Foods, Conscious Decay. And uh, one of the products that we had launched was the world's first plant-based eel. So it's funny that you mentioned that.
0: Um, Sounds like I got to do a little bit better research next
1: no, time. No, no, no. Just uh, <laughs> that wasn't that was an exciting product for us. And I'll tell you that just as a tangent, the reason that that product was so exciting was because the sustainability issues surrounding freshwater eels or unagi are so significant. People don't realize that um, eels are primarily farmed. And however, uh, however they cannot be farmed from, uh, from reproductive age. They can't reproduce naturally in farms. And so they have to be captured from the wild and then grown in farms which means that every single eel that's taken from, the, from their traditional uh, water source and put into a farm is the last of that generation. And we're seeing major, major declines in those populations as freshwater eel has gotten more popular on menus around the world, uh, primarily around sushi. And so um, a lot of retail chains and sushi chains have actually banned the sale of freshwater eel or unagi for that reason. And we saw that with actually chains as big as Albertsons uh, have walked away from serving any eel. And so that's where the demand for that particular product actually has a real opportunity. Um, that said, going back to your question, uh, you asked if we are saturated with all of the things that have come out. Look, I think that's true that probably the vast majority of categories of animal product products have had an attempt at making a plant-based alternative. Now, do I think we are... Uh, do I think that we are oversaturated? No. I think, again, it's about understanding, what are we needing to solve in those categories, and have we solved it? Um, just because there is an option doesn't mean it's a good one. And is it really addressing the need the consumer has? So, you know, I'll give you an example of a category that I think is ripe for disruption, and that's the deli meat space, right? Americans eat six times as many sandwiches with cold cuts or deli sliced deli meats per year As burgers. And yet, the plant based burger category is hundreds of millions large. And the plant based deli meat category is, you know, 50 million or so nationwide, food service and retail combined. So, if we just looked at projecting out the plant based deli meat space to its uh, proportional size relative to burgers, we're talking about a multi billion dollar category growing from 50 million. So the massive opportunity there is so huge, and I think companies have, you know, there's a real opportunity there. There are companies now aiming to address that. Um, companies like Prime Roots and others that are really looking to to capitalize on that in that space. And I hope they're successful. I think there's a lot of room there to grow. Um, so the fact that we've we've had products in that space doesn't necessarily mean that there's been a solution that truly excited consumers and motivated non-vegetarian consumers to take the plunge into eating something other than what they traditionally eat uh and i think that's that's the case in each category there, there are different needs that still need to be solved for plant-based cheese is a great example you know there are a lot of plant-based cheeses out there but how many of them are really melting um and of those that are meant to melt you know the shreds the slices the you know and those kinds of products as opposed to the traditional blocks or creamier cheeses You know, what are we seeing uh, working and what are we seeing not? Well, still, a lot of them are not melting the way we'd expect or like to see from a traditional dairy cheese. You know, a lot of them will pool oil or uh, not have the same kind of uh, stretchiness when they melt. And so, there's an opportunity still to disrupt that category with really excellent, uh, stretchy, melted cheese. We've seen growth and leaps and bounds there, but there's still a lot of room. Uh, we also have an opportunity there to improve on healthfulness. You know, the the majority of some of those cheeses are made from you know coconut oil and starch, and those ingredients are okay. But I do think consumers are excited to see more protein in their cheeses, excited to see more calcium, and, and excited to see other things. And so, you know, there are definitely opportunities to uh, disrupt even established categories with products that are are, are better tasting, more. Uh, better have better texture and more functional in their performance, uh, have better nutrition, better price, etc. cetera. And so I think there's always opportunity. Um, it's about understanding the pain point and addressing that specific need. So I don't think we are uh, saturated to the point where there's no opportunity, but I think we always need to be thoughtful about where we go. Would I jump into launching a plant-based milk made out of one additional seed, nut, or unique ingredient that I haven't seen before, probably wouldn't be my first step, <laughs> my first effort. Um, similarly, I probably wouldn't launch a plant-based burger right now unless I had a really compelling value proposition. But there are many, many categories that have not seen that kind of uh, penetration and where there is still a ton of opportunity. So I'm excited to see that growth. I think that you know the the arc of history is on the side of plant-based innovation because we've got thousands and thousands and thousands of species of land and aquatic plants available to us to uh, leverage their nutritional, functional, uh, and sensory benefits. And with the animal products, we're really stuck with one. You can't you can't do much with cow's milk other than skim off the fat off the top or other things. But with plant-based, you can celebrate so many flavors, so many different mouthfeels, so many different nutrition profiles and functionalities. And so I think the opportunities are endless Uh, And every day we're seeing more and more innovation and better products in each category that will lead to reducing barriers for consumers to embrace foods that they know and are excited about uh, being healthier and more sustainable.
0: So it was great talking to you with David, you know, tons of stuff to really follow up on here. And I'm really excited to kind of watch as this year and even the future years go on to just kind of see how the plant-based space grows. Um, I'm just wondering if anybody in the audience wants to learn a little bit about you, uh, a little bit more about your companies, where should they go?
1: Absolutely. So you can always find us at our website, uh, www.missionplant.com. And that's plant, singular, missionplant.com. And you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm quite active on there. Um, and so David Benzakin, B-E-N-Z-A-Q-U-E-N. Uh, please reach out anytime. I'm excited to speak to you. And I appreciate anybody who is excited about the growth in this space and wants to get involved. You know, every day I speak to people who are are so moved by the huge impact that we can have by making more thoughtful choices around our diets and by changing the food system, how it touches everything from health and sustainability to animal welfare to, you know, so many world hunger and so many different things. And so I'm speaking to people every day who are really looking for opportunities to get involved in the sector. And I'll just say, I think those opportunities are endless. There is still a need for so much innovation for so many of your talents. So I encourage everybody who wants to get involved to do so and to find the place where they can make the biggest impact with their, specific skill set. And I look forward to the growth of the space. So please reach out on LinkedIn or at our website, missionplant.com.
0: And anybody listening in will definitely have links to both David's LinkedIn and also to the website. So you can take a look in the description there to get a link directly to those two sites. But yeah, once again, David, just want to thank you for spending some time with us today on the Food Institute podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure again. And that's going to do it for us this week on the Food Institute Podcast. Once again, take a look in the description of this episode for some links directly to Mission Plant, Moonshot Collaborative, and also a sign-up link for the Plant-Based Insider. We'll catch you next time. This is Chris Campbell, signing off.